0: Luke chapter number 14, and we're going to begin the first part of a sermon that I've titled Counterculture. Now, many of you are old enough that counterculture means something different or meant something different than what I'm going to speak of it as today and next week, but but if you think about it, what it meant as you were coming along maybe in the 60s is not that different now. We've just kind of flipped sides on who it applies to. Uniquely, it's always applied this way to God's people and that they are counter to the culture in which they find themselves. Here in Luke chapter number 14, we find Jesus' teaching that a dedicated disciple gives up all claims to worldly goods to carry a cross and to follow Jesus. Dedicated disciples live a life that reverses the world's values. We are to surrender self and position for persistent obedience to Christ. Our hope and our confidence is only in the resurrection. Christ teaches us here and all throughout Scripture that the kingdom of God belongs to such dedicated disciples. Those who are humbly dedicated to Christ. He also teaches here in this passage, and last week we got a little of this, that the kingdom of God is not those, and it doesn't belong to those, who are in control of organized religion or who sit in any other seat of earthly power. That is not where we find the leadership of the kingdom. Jesus and his followers, his dedicated disciples, are always going to be counter to the culture around them. And so here we find through this some instances that Jesus teaches about this. He teaches about the best seats, which we just read. He teaches about a coveted invitation we'll get to next time. This idea of, oh, I got invited. (laughs) I'm going to get to go, this kind of a thing. And then he concludes in the rest of chapter 14 then in teaching about what a disciple's life should look like. Let's pray and then we'll begin looking at verses 1 through 11. Father, we're thankful for time together in the Word with the church and we ask for your blessing upon this time. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit and your Word that you would edify the church this morning. Yes, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we consider this passage about the best seats, I want to talk to you on two particular headings and those are the trap of legalism and then the ambition that we find here of these Pharisees. So we begin with verses 1 through 6 and there's this encounter which is just a trap of the Pharisees. They want to trap Jesus and they want to put him on the spot and hopefully make him do something that will allow them to accuse him so that they can jail him and crucify him. They want to get rid of him. So their plan goes that they're going to invite him to a meal on the Sabbath day. Notice verse number one. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. Now, with this, they also invite a man who we're going to call this morning ripe for healing. This is a man that would have been very hard for Jesus to pass up, having mercy and showing compassion on him. Notice verse two. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had... The drop seat. Now, that's not a term we use much anymore, but our understanding of what was going on there in this man's body was that his organs are failing, and so his body's retaining fluid, which still happens even in our day. And these cavities in his body being filled with this fluid retention caused him to look a certain way, and it was obvious that he was very sick just from the the outward look of him there. Well, Jesus sees the trap, and, and, and we find a reversal here. It's not the Pharisees or the 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 scribes saying to jesus wait is it lawful to heal on the sabbath day here we find jesus realizing the situation and flipping it on them and saying to them would it be lawful for me to heal this man on the sabbath day verse three jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the sabbath day and they held their peace well that's a blessing isn't it don't you like it when those who know it all just decide to be quiet finally you can say amen. I know you're glad when I stop preaching. <laughs> they finally shut up. They, Jesus has been trying to do this work and these people won't be quiet. And finally he asks them this question and they have no answer. And so Jesus takes the man and he heals them and then he lets him go. And he answered them saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. So twice... They have nothing to say now gloriously in this passage, because we're going to we're going to delve down into the problems with the organized religion here. But I don't want you to miss the miracle and I don't want you to miss. Don't miss the good because we're dealing with the bad. Jesus heals this man. This is a man who is so sick with his organs failing that it's obvious just by looking at him. You ever seen someone who is jaundiced? their their liver is failing and they turn mustard-colored. It's a sad thing to see. Someone who is sick and going to die and their body begins to swell. It's a, it's a horrible thing. Can you imagine if you were that person or you were a loved one of that person and they came home from this dinner and they weren't that way anymore? What a marvelous, marvelous thing this is that Jesus has done here. Church, we can never lose sight of that part of gospel ministry. It changes people's lives to the better. We can get so caught up in, like I'm caught up this week in, you know, like carpet laying and tile laying and getting chairs out of storage and getting rid of sheetrock dust. I don't know where sheetrock goes dust goes when you get rid of it, but it goes somewhere. We just need it somewhere other than where it is right now, right? Or whatever it is that seems to take up our time and our energies all throughout the church age get so caught up in those things that we miss the most important things. The good news of the gospel is good news because it changes people's lives. It takes them from being sinful to being sin free. It takes them from being diseased to being disease free. From dying to living forever. What a blessing this is to read about the mercy of Christ. The caring of Jesus. Knowing that this was a trap knowing that in this moment these people could have done something to him that he otherwise didn't want to have done to him. Now, I'll stop myself there and remember that Jesus had all this planned out, I believe. He had it timed. It was no mistake that when he prepared for the Last Supper with his disciples that he said, go over to town and and tell the, the man that I'm ready for the room. Or when he was ready for his triumphal entry, he said, go over there and tell the person the Lord has need of this animal. All of these things were organized and planned out we must never forget that that's part of our comfort but nevertheless he looked past the trap he looked past the potential accusation that could come with this and he just cared for someone who was in need now that's a great blessing well i would say to us as dedicated disciples of christ well first let me remind you what it means to be a christian it means to be like christ it doesn't mean be a churchgoer. The world is full of churchgoers. Sadly, we've come to realize in recent years that not everyone who's a churchgoer is a Christian. In fact, we've kind of entered into this whole like dentist mentality. If I get my teeth clean twice a year, they won't fall out. Man, the older I get, the less I'm believing that. <laughs> I got some getting close here, I think. If I, if I go to church, I'll, everything will be all right. Well, no. Because everything has been made all right by Jesus, I want to go to church and worship. Well, I enjoyed this morning getting to stand off to the side there. I usually don't do that. And singing these songs and, and getting to worship around the Father. What a blessing that was. That's what church going is for. Worshiping together with the body of Christ, with our church family. But here, what I'm talking to you about when I say being a dedicated disciple is to be like Christ. To be living and doing as He did and would do where He here today. We're to be little Christs running around the earth. Well, as that, we must beware of legalistic traps. These Pharisees had laid a trap for Jesus. They knew that they believed their law taught, the law of God, by the way, They thought they were right by the law of God that you shouldn't be healing people on the Sabbath. Well, we dealt with that in more detail last week. So they invited Jesus to this dinner to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Will he do good and break the law? Or will he put off doing the good and fulfill the law? If you're ever presented with that conundrum, what should your solution be? If it's wrong to do good, then I don't want to be right. Well, Wearsby notes here, there's a big difference between protecting God's truth and promoting God's traditions. The legalists will attempt this trap to allow him to feel superior in his own spirituality. Aha! (laughs) It's one of these type moments. Well, Jesus is able to help this man and point out their entrapment. And I love how he does it here. Did you notice what he does here in verse 4? Now, this man's been invited to dinner. Best we can tell, they haven't had the dinner yet. I kind of feel bad for this guy. Jesus took him and healed him and let him go. And he didn't even get to have dinner. I don't think he cared. His organs were failing and his body was filling with fluid and he was healed. But it's sort of, as, a, as an eater, I, I, I care about this part of it. But it's a proof text for us in this story to what's happening here. By sending the man away from the dinner... Jesus is showing to those who held this dinner, I realize what you have done here. You only have him here to trap me, not to fellowship with us. You don't care about this man. You care about trying to trap me here. Well, they misunderstood the meaning of Sabbath. They had set it up as this holy day. And Jesus corrects them by saying, wouldn't you show care to an animal? Even on this holy day, why won't you show care to a human created in God's image? So I think there's a warning to you and I here as disciples of Christ that we must also understand the meaning of Sabbath. J.C. Ryle said the Sabbath was made for man, for his benefit, not for his injury, for his advantage, not for his hurt. The interpretation of God's law respecting the Sabbath was never intended to be strained so far as to interfere with charity, kindness, and the real wants of human nature. Why was the Sabbath set up? Why did God establish this thing early on in the Old Covenant? Well, it was set up for a day of worship and rest. It was a mercy for those who were in need of such mercy. It's unique how then, in the name of God, organizers of religion made it out to be something totally different. It actually, in its own way, became less restful than the rest of the week. I can prove this to you. How many of you getting dressed and getting ready for church? Now, please remember that I don't think Sunday is Sabbath and we don't practice that Sabbath anymore. But, but we hold Sunday to be the first day of the week. We call it the Lord's Day because it was the day the Lord was resurrected. And we meet together to worship a resurrected Christ on the Lord's Day. But how many of you, Sunday, is more stressful to you, Sunday mornings, than most of the other days of the week? How many of you tell lies in church? (laughs) Why is this? It's because we've done, in our own little way, I went home last Sunday and I told Shanae, I said, because it was like 138 degrees last Sunday, wasn't it? Well, I, I am wearing three layers here in this thing around my neck that doesn't let the sweat flow but I told Chennai I said Whew, we got to change traditions at our church and she said why and I said because I'm too large and too hot to be to be dressing like this, this warm outside. <laughs> thank you brother thank you <laughs> you want to stand up and let people see how you're dressed <laughs> 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 <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> they've been worried about this wild guy from Minnesota now they're getting to know you Now, I like my suits, don't get me wrong. No, amen there. All right. (laughs) So, my point was simply we put on these airs, we've done this to ourselves. Now, what's the dress code at our church? Number one question we get through the website. That's the number one. What's the dress code at your church? Back in the day, it was me and probably Brother Tom Meadows, and I, I would guess Brother James Fairs was helping us, Brother Tom. We had just gotten a website. Our church didn't have one. We got this 2010 model website, got it used for a good price. <laughs> and uh, we were trying to decide what needs to be on this website. And we were getting emails and stuff, and people were saying, what's the dress code at your church? And so we said, well, we should put a FAQ section on the church website. Frequently asked questions. Well, that was the only one we had. So I had to make up some other ones. They weren't frequently asked, but I figured if you just had the one, that'd be kind of weird. But Brother I was still living there, and I remember having this discussion with Brother Rye, and he said, he said, Brother? Now, Brother, you have to know Brother Rye. Everybody to the left of us was apostate. You know, we were right, we were right in the line. Anyone to the right of us, he would always say, Well, I'll never fault a man for being more right than I am. But then anybody just to this side of us, even the tad little bit, they were apostates. Charismatics is what he called them. They're all charismatics. And that's just how he felt. That's just where where his line was. And Brother Rye would say, now, brother, the charismatics and the apostates, they've got this thing wrong, brother. They're legalists. And I'm thinking, wait, charismatics? They're not legalists. And he said, they have dress codes. And I said, no, they don't. They don't have dress codes at their churches. I said, no, we probably have more of a dress code. He said, no, sir, we don't have a dress code and never have, and we never will. And I got into what he was talking about there, and this was his point. He said, if I show up dressed like this to what he called the charismatic church, they'd frown upon that and look down upon me because they have a dress code. I guess come as you are, is it? Actually, sort of a dress code, because this isn't how I am. I don't dress like this on Tuesdays. What's the point I'm trying to make here? I picked on music last Sunday. I'm picking on dress this Sunday. And you can just keep picking things and keep picking on them. In reality, we've fallen into the same pit as the organized religious folk of Jesus' day. Jesus is making it clear to them here. Whatever you do or whatever you don't do, don't get away from this being a day of rest, this being a day of worship, this being a day of mercy for those who need That type of mercy. Some of you need the mercy of rest. All of us need the mercy of worship. If you've never actively worshipped in church, I want to charge you to do it. It involves you. When you actively worship, sing, pray, uplift your hand, whatever it is that you're comfortable doing in the gathering, if you're actively involved in the worship, you will learn to think, well, I'm involved with these people. Now, many of you, that is your crutch. That's the thing that you don't want to do. You don't want to be that attached to this group of people because you don't want to be attached to many groups of people at all. Now, some of you, I'll let you off the hook because you're like me. You're introverted, and that's just how you want to be. But some of you, it's that way because some other group of people that you let yourselves get attached to hurt your feelings. You're not worshiping a group of people. You're worshiping God who saved your wretched soul. I don't care who the people are. If they're doing it biblically, I'll worship with them. I'll be at least attached to them that much. Worship will cause you to be involved with those kind of people. Worship will cause you to be edified in a way that you didn't know was possible because you didn't do this all week long. Now, what's, what's afterlife going to be like? What's the millennial kingdom going to be like? What's eternity going to be like? Well, I think 100% of the time we'll be worshipful. Now, does that mean halos and clouds and harps? No. And we joke around here that Caitlin Joseph, that might be her version of heaven, just getting to play the harp all day long. But she's a harp player. No. I don't. She would probably shake her head no if she was sitting here this morning. What that means is, how many of you just, your favorite thing to do is go fishing? Okay, two of us and Ruth. All right. Ruth and Emma and Greg. Oh, we got some over here. All right, Parker, Addie, Thomas. Greg, you might be starting a little group here in the church. And Joshua, you got your... Sinead and Miss Liz have a youth choir. Greg's got a youth fishing group here. Well, if your favorite thing to do was to go fishing, and you just felt like I'm, I'm, I'm the most in, in touch with the Lord when I am fishing, my, hey, don't laugh, mine is eating. When do I thank God the most? Praise the Lord. Mm. when do I stress and pray Lord I got to get one more bite in help me now <laughs> stand up and shake a leg if <laughs> boy this is getting off track isn't it now you are just thinking about fishing and eating and not worshiping if your favorite thing is doing that thing what will eternity be like does it mean you're never going to get to fish again well, wouldn't it be silly of God to let you be involved with some things that aren't necessarily sinful in this life and then to keep you from them from, from then on Like, oh, you're you're here with me now. We're not going to do that anymore because we don't do that around here. I don't think that would be the case. I don't feel like he's that type of father. But do you think in eternity that you could do that in a worshipful way? And what should now look like, because we're technically already started our eternal lives if you're saved, it should be learning how to do that in a worshipful way. John Piper talks about why does missions exist? Why does world missions exist? Missions exist... To get worship of God everywhere that it's not. That's a wonderful definition of missions. Why are we sending missionaries to places? Why do we need missionaries here? Well, where are people not worshiping the Lord? What was the problem here in the text with the way they were observing Sabbath? They were worshiping themselves and their ideas and their orders and the things that they had organized. Here's what it looks like we make our plans. We arrange for our plans to be worked out. We come together together and we work out our plans. We shake hands on the way out and pat each other on the back. We did our plans. It went well. Nothing real crazy happened this Sunday. And off we go. And maybe a few times a year, something unique happens, but it's just within our comfort zone. And maybe it's for the good. You know, somebody actually gets saved. We have a baptism. Well, that's to be expected. As you work out this type of plan over time, statistically, one in every 38 gatherings, there should be a lost person who shows up and, and they should be convinced to be saved. I'm being facetious. And we go home and, well, how do we feel about things? Feel so good that we can take a nap because, well, we've done that thing that we planned out to do. Did we worship God or did we worship our plan? Did we worship God or did we or, worship our organization of Religion: Are we actually being like Christ and dedicated disciples? Or are we simply being what is expected of organized religion in the world around us? And church, if you don't think God is trying to teach this to our church, then you're missing the big picture. We, we've debated, you and me and some of us, on who knocked our church building over. It was either God or the devil, right? Let's give it to either one. Let's just say either or. But even in Job's life, when the de- when God let the devil do these things, it was still God who let it with a purpose. Well, we're going through the Book of Luke, and I told Shanae yesterday. I said, "Be glad we're done with Luke," and she said, "Why?" I said, "Feels like the same sermon every week." I said, "I swear I'm studying. I swear I'm studying." But every passage, it's Jesus and the Pharisees knocking heads, and they're he's working on them to this thing. Why? Because they're missing the kingdom. They're trying to figure out why he's not the Messiah. And he's saying, I'm right here. I'm the Messiah. It's like a kid, the first time you take him to an amusement park or a fair. They can't wait to get on the ride. And the first one you go up to has the flashing lights and the spinning things and the noise. And they're so excited to get on the ride. And then they look over there and they say, oh, there's another ride. They don't even want to ride this one. They want to go see that one. Then you get to that one. They say, oh, there's another ride. We didn't want to ride that one. We're going to go see the next one. And then there's corn dogs. And I can worship. The Lord has us plowing through these verses. He's dealing with the Pharisees. He's pushed us out of our own facility that we call the church. I think, if anything, He's taught us. Well, I've learned so much to be thankful in every situation, to be the church outside of the building. But think of it in this regard. Can you, can you worship here? This is a civic center. This was not built to God's glory. It wasn't built for worship for purposes. But shouldn't we be able to worship here if one of the things we love, like fishing and eating corn dogs, is getting together with our church family and singing about our God who has made us like we are? Shouldn't we be able to do that here, there, or anywhere? But not these Pharisees. They made it into a day to catch people getting it wrong. You know, they're not according to dress code. Okay, I'm going to admit, I unbuttoned my top button today, all right? Just so you know. I know some of you could tell the sermon was off. This is the reason why. I'm not as straight-laced as normal preaching to you today. They were so busy trying to catch people getting it wrong. They were also so busy trying to gain merit getting it right themselves. You ever think to yourself, I'm glad our church is not like the other churches. I'm glad we do it this way and not that. I'm glad we do this, though they don't do that anymore. I'm glad we don't do this like they do. What are we doing there?" Now, in some things, we would say, well, we're trying to hold the biblical truth. Well, you got me there. If we want to stick to what the Bible says, then I'm in. But if it's simply so that we're gaining merit to get it right, I want to be out. As we kind of attack our thinking on what the Lord's Day should be or what the Sabbath should have been then, I think we need to also include a positive here on, well, what should we be doing on the Lord's Day? What should we do be doing with what I'm okay calling a new covenant Sabbath. Phil Riken, he writes well on this. He says, Jesus calls us away from selfishness and the legalism of our sinful hearts to follow him in loving mercy and doing justice. The Lord's day is for the healthy to show mercy to the sick by visiting them on their beds. It is for fathers to show mercy to their children by putting them at the top of their agenda. It is for families to show mercy to singles by welcoming them into their homes. It is for the wealthy to show mercy to the poor by feeding them bread. It is a day for people who have found Christ to show mercy to people who are still lost by giving them the Gospel. The Lord's Day is for showing every compassion of Christ to every person in need, just like Jesus. And with that definition, I'm okay if you say, well, every day is the Lord's Day. Truly it is. And honestly, if we lived it that way, I don't think it would be as stressful as Sunday mornings typically are for us. Now, Jesus goes from the trap of legalism, and he teaches a parable in verses 7 through 11 about a wedding feast. And in this, we learn about the temptation of ambition. Verse number 7, And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, and he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding... Sit not in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, give this man place, and thou begin with the same to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit and meet with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." There is the temptation of ambition. Jesus teaches about this here uh, with these seats at a wedding. Different than our time. He, he talks about these rooms and chief rooms and lesser rooms, but we can still think of it and get the same understanding here of you know, where, where you sit, the good seat, the, the best seat. If you're called to a banquet, do you sit by the host or do you sit by the servants? This, this kind of a thing. The principle is clear. If you're invited, verse 11, don't take the best place, take the least. If you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you can expect to be exalted. It's better to be asked to move up than to be asked to move down. In verse 11, Jesus puts that forth as a principle. As he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is not new information. In fact, all throughout the Scriptures, this has been the teaching. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, we read this, Put not forth thyself in the presence of a king, and stand not in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than that thou shouldest be put, in the, put lower in the presence of the prince, whom thine eyes have seen. Francis Schaeffer had a sermon titled, No Little People, No Little Place. And he he says here that the Christian should choose the lesser place until God extrudes him into a position of more responsibility and authority. Sadly, what we find in this passage of Luke is that the lesson Jesus is teaching was the very reason for the legalism among these Jewish religious leaders. Because they wanted to be first in such gatherings best seats the coveted invitation they were setting these traps of legalism because what did this person of Christ do to their systems it it kind of upended it so this temptation of selfish ambition had led them into the manipulation of setting traps of legalism they were more concerned with their public reputation than their private godliness Kent Hughes says, the Pharisees and scribes, despite all their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. So Jesus teaches here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we know the scriptures, so we know this is how God works in salvation. Let me give you some proof texts for this, and you can turn along if you want. Philippians chapter 2, very popular passage. You probably know it by heart, or at least can reference it in your brain. Verse 5, Paul writes, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. That's the mentality we're to have. We sing the song, May the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me from day to day. What is the mind of Christ my Savior? Selflessness. He made himself of no reputation. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion, as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now why does Paul accentuate there? Dying for our sins is one thing, but to die on a cross was to die in shame. That was a total different thing. Now verse 9 in Philippians 2 takes us to the next level as Paul says, Wherefore, in light of that. God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Gospel. This is good news. His exaltation, it brings our salvation. How did He achieve this exaltation? Did He come and conquer? Did He come and rule and reign? Not in the way we would think that he would. He came and became a servant. The way he illustrated this so well on the night of his arrest is he pulls his disciples aside into a room for one last meal together. And he puts on that servant's apron and he gets down and begins to wash your feet. And Peter, the legalist's legalist, <laughs> says, uh-uh said, I'll wash your feet. And Jesus' interaction with him is to, to teach Peter, if I can't humble myself to do this, you can have no part in me. And Peter says, well then, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me, head to toe. Give me a shower. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes this, Likewise you younger, Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Now, is this just Peter saying, hey, this is how things would run best down at your organized religious location? No. This is Peter saying, when I was young, I made lots of mistakes. By the grace of God, He's let me live to be old, to express some wisdom with you. The Holy Spirit has inspired me to say this to you. So let me say this to you. What? Be selfless. Why? For God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what's his instruction? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cared for you. Why all the anxiety in the world? Why all the stress? Because we've forgotten this simple principle of Christian living. The principle that whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbleth himself will be exalted. We've been convinced that the reins of my life are in my hands and I can do whatever I want to do. No, you can't, Jonah. You can't go on vacation. You've got to go to Nineveh and preach. Well, I'm going to go on vacation anyways. (laughs) You could have walked to preach. But now you're going to get a cab ride. And I promise you they'll listen to your preaching because you're going to look awfully weird when you get there. Augustine said, there are humble religious and there are proud religious. The proud ones should not promise themselves the kingdom of God. It's convicting. Even from the secular world, we find this to be a truth. Albert Einstein said, try not to become a man of success but try to become a man of value. This is true. Now, with this, we need to be sure this is not a gimmick. This is not Jesus saying, hey, look, I'm from heaven. Let me show you a little trick that works with God. It's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to say, if you do this, this guarantees you promotion because I can give you other biblical reference where that didn't always end up being the case. This is not saying operate in false humility and that's how you please God. In fact, to operate in false humility is just as deplorable to God to operate in your pride. We must never forget that God sees the heart. 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, now we're talking about David here, Look not on his countenance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him, Saul. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Saul's no longer going to be the king. We're going to go down to the house of Jesse. They didn't even think to call David up from, uh, from the field because he's a lowly shepherd guy. But there's all these strong, tall, smart brothers, you know. One after the other. These are not the ones. It's funny how God works like that. James 4.6 But he giveth more grace. That's often quoted alone. The rest of that statement is wonderful though and it goes right in with he gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. It's a funny thing when you finally realize this but it's an important thing to finally realize. God is not impressed by others' opinions of you. That's tough, isn't it? We work so... Hard for, I spent too long in the mirror this morning trying to make sure you couldn't tell my top button was open even though I probably uh, worked out so much this week. that <laughs> God is not impressed with others' opinions of us. Humility is a thing that can be awfully elusive. You see, humility is not you thinking lowly of yourself Humility is for you to not be thinking of yourself. These people in this parable, they, they wanted the best seats at this wedding. In our life, surely the best seats are a thing sought after. Now, is this Jesus' instruction that dedicated disciples will never have this in life? I don't think so. In fact, he seems to indicate that if you operate according to verse 11 in selfless humility, you'd always be seated right where you want to be seated. What a unique thing. When I'm not thinking of myself, I can be content wherever I am. Sadly, the religious in this text were not this way. They were intent that they deserved it. Can you imagine the, the situation there at the dinner in the first six verses? I, I wonder if Jesus talked to anybody else in the house before he talked to the man that was sick and, and dealt with him. Well, we know that he did. He says that he, he said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? But a unique thing from this is he kind of dealt with that first. You know, he's there for this dinner, he's, there's some um, airs that go on with these types of things. How to enter the room. How to greet your... There's an Andy Griffith episode about this if you need to know. They try to teach Ernest T. Bass how to enter a room. Jesus is more concerned with this guy to help than these Pharisees. These Pharisees' whole mentality is, we're the most important. And then he gives them this parable this wedding feast saying, yeah, when you guys get called to a wedding, you want to sit right next to the bride and groom where... What you should do is sit in the back and be asked to sit there instead of sitting right next to the bride and groom and having to ask, can you scoot over because their parents would like to sit here? Their temptation of ambition had left them in their own trap of legalism. What are some life applications we can take from these verses? First, personal humility marks the person who is dedicated to God. Personal humility marks the person who is dedicated to God. We must learn humility as a style of life. We must learn to be content in the lowest place. Now, I'll say to most of us, especially as adults, this won't come natural, and you will initially have to just work at it. Some of you wired a little differently, maybe not as much as others, but typically it is something that we have to practice. In time, though, you will learn this and you'll be able to operate this way to God's glory and for your betterment. But personal humility is a mark of a person who is dedicated to God. Secondly, we could take away from this that God calls us to minister to those with needs. I don't want to say that our church has lost sight of this, but I'd definitely say that Most of the church on the earth has lost sight of this. Either they've lost sight of biblical truth and they've tried to replace bad behavior with good works and they're doing it to no avail. Or they're so settled in their biblical truth that they've given up this idea of good works. Church, God has called us to minister to those with needs. So we must care more for others' needs than for our own desires and for our own reputation. Well, how do I do this? You're going to have to trust God to provide for your needs now and trust God for your rewards later. Because otherwise, you're going to be spending your life. Life is a currency. How are you spending it? You're going to be spending your life trying to make sure that your needs are met and then you'll say, out of the overflow of that, I'll, I'll look to other people's needs And you'll never get around to it. But if you trust God that He's going to take care of me, I'm fulfilling His purposes. Why would He let me go without anything to eat? Why would He let me go without clothes to wear? Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These things will be added to you. Think of the flowers. They never go shopping down at the mall, but they've always got pretty clothes to wear. Think of the birds. They never plant a garden, but they've always got food to eat. What should this look like in our lives? Well, in personal humility, we should be living our days as if every moment is a calling to help somebody else with a need. And all in all in this, never forget how this type of living worked out for Jesus. Because if we're not careful, we'll hear such a sermon and say, yeah, this is right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be humble. Sometimes I'm so humble, I'm proud of myself. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to help so many people. They put a statue up in town of me. Is that what happened for Jesus? No, they, they beat him half to death, put him on a cross, and killed him the rest of the way. Why? Because he was countercultural. He was not how things had always been. He was not how things they thought should be. He was different. Dedicated disciples of Christ are going to have to live differently just this way. Let's stand and pray.